0: Thanks very much, Pip, for that uh, kind introduction. To all of you for uh, joining us here in the State Library today. Uh, can I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, pay my respects to Elders past and present, uh, and thank uh, Pip Freebairn, Leonora Riss and Danielle Wood uh, for the hard work and making the Women in Economics Network what it is today. Uh, it's a real honour to be speaking with you and I'm also looking forward to the inaugural Australian Gender, e- e- Gender Economics Workshop in Melbourne. Uh, next February. It's not often that you speak on a topic that some people don't even think is worth discussing. Earlier this year, Scott Morrison opined that, quote, the tax system doesn't discriminate by gender. It's an absolutely ridiculous proposition. He went on to say, you know, you don't get pink forms and blue forms to fill out your tax reform, so it's just a tax return, it's just a nonsense of an argument. The Centre for Independent Studies went on to call the conversation about gender and taxation absurd. The Australian Taxpayers Alliance went a little further and said that such a conversation amounted to shamefully using women as political pawns. So, I feel I should start off by explaining why we need to discuss gender and tax. The starting point is that there are still massive gender differences in Australia today. Women comprise just 26% of ASX 200 board directors and 7% of ASX 200 CEOs. There are more large companies in Australia run by men with the first name of John than there are run by women. Women make up just 28% of the judiciary and in federal parliament just 32.4% of federal parliamentarians. That ranks Australia 50th in the world for global equality. An interesting new analysis just came out to my attention this week from Megan Hemming looks at the names of the current parliamentary seats. She finds that 92 of the seats are named after men and only 15 are named after women, with the remaining 43 being named after places and families. It's no wonder in such a context that 30% of girls believe their gender is a barrier to a political career. Among full-time workers, women earn 85 cents for every dollar earned by men, which is basically like women working without pay for the first seven weeks of the year. The gender pay gap closed a little this year, but it's still only slightly smaller than it was two decades ago. Women are twice as likely to be sexually harassed as men and three times as likely to be a victim of intimate partner violence. Half of all mothers report experiencing discrimination while pregnant, on maternity leave or returning to work. Women do 19 hours of unpaid housework each week, compared to 6 hours for men. In superannuation, women's balances are half those of men. Or as Senator Jenny McAllister's 2016 report put it, a husband is not a retirement plan. Campaign groups have also drawn attention to what they call the pink tax, which sees women pay more for similar items. A study by the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs found that products for women or girls cost 7% more than comparable products for men or boys, to the largest differences emerging for personal care products and adult clothing. A study even found that girls' toys are more expensive than boys' toys. Which is especially unfair when you consider the fact that another survey found that girls get 26% less pocket money than boys. If you've watched sport lately, you've probably watched men's sport, given that women's sport accounts only for only 7% of all televised sports coverage in Australia. That then in turn explains why it attracts less sponsorship and pays lower salaries. So, If you think Australia has more work to do on the path towards gender equity, then it seems strange you'd immediately rule out the possibility that the tax system might have some work to do along that journey. And oddly, many of those who think that the tax system has nothing to do with gender equity do acknowledge that the tax system has an impact on poverty and on inequality. It's almost like they want to put up a sign at the door to the tax to pay, saying, Feminists, keep out. Egalitarians, welcome. The fact is, the tax system already exacerbates gender inequality in a number of important respects. First, women tend to face higher effective marginal tax rates than men. Effective marginal tax rates combine the impact of income taxes and benefit withdrawal. In essence, answering the question, if I earn one more dollar of wages, how much better off am I? If someone's in the 30% tax bracket and they face a 30% phase-out, of family benefits, their effective marginal tax rate is 60%. Or in other words, for every dollar they earn, they're 40 cents better off. One thing to immediately notice about this is that's a higher effective marginal tax rate than someone in the top tax bracket. If you've got a million dollar annual income, you face a marginal tax rate of 47% including the Medicare levy. But as Miranda Stewart and others have pointed out, women with children often face marginal tax rates of 70 or 80%. High effective tax rates aren't an accident. Analysis by Peter Whiteford and others has shown that Australia's social safety net is the most tightly targeted in the world. The upside of this is that a dollar spent through the Australian welfare system does more to reduce inequality than a dollar spent through the income support system of pretty much any other nation. But the way we achieve this is through an often complicated series of income tests and sometimes even asset tests. So the downside of targeting is high effective marginal tax rates. Nowhere is this more true than with childcare. Because women have traditionally done the majority of unpaid childcare, childcare subsidies have a strong impact on women's labour force participation. That's why Labor opposed the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government's recent changes to the tax system, to introduce, or to the childcare system, to introduce a means test and an activity test. A childcare means test based on family income risks sending a message to women who are married to higher-earning men, don't bother re-entering the workforce, it'll cost you more than you'll earn. That's in turn bad for productivity, bad for growth, and bad for equity. My colleague Amanda Rishworth has raised concerns that the Coalition's childcare changes might make it harder for some women to combine work and parenting. Now, if women were less responsive to tax rates than men, this might be less of a concern for policymakers. When I taught public finance, we'd remind students that optimal taxation theory dictates that the most efficient taxes are those which have the least distortionary impact on productive behaviour. If women were less likely than men to withdraw from paid work in the face of high effective marginal tax rates, then policymakers could potentially put the problem off to one side. But alas, the reverse turns out to be true. According to the literature review by the Australian Treasury, women are significantly more responsive to tax rates than men. This is especially true among those who are married. On average, the research suggests the 10 percentage point increase in effective marginal tax rates reduces married women's labour force participation by 3%. The impact on married men? Zero. Similar results can be seen in other advanced countries. Raise the effective marginal tax rate on married women and they drop out of the labour force in droves. Raise effective marginal tax rates on married men and the effect is close to zero. The result has led economists Alberto Alessina, Andrea Icino and Lucas Carabodocus to argue that from the standpoint of optimal taxation theory income tax rates should be lower on women than men. Now, before Scott Morrison's head explodes, I should be clear I'm not making this proposal. My point's a different one. Women are highly responsi- responsive to effective marginal tax rates. So if we want to encourage more women into work, we need to get the tax and transfer system right. From a gender equity perspective, one thing Australia has gotten right is to levy income taxes on an individual basis, rather than taxing the combined incomes of married couples. This is an issue that Patricia Apps, who's in the audience, has written a great deal about. Like Canada, the Australian tax system was based on individual income from the outset, which meant that lower-earning spouses faced lower marginal tax rates. By contrast, New Zealand and Britain began by taxing married couples' joint income, and then, over time, moved back to individual filing. The United States still maintains a system of joint tax filing for spouses, creating what public finance economists romantically call a marriage penalty. By raising the marginal tax rate on the lower-earning member of the couple, joint filing tends to reduce female labour force participation, particularly for women who are married to high-earning men. Second, the existing disparity between the earnings of men and women means that cuts to top tax rates disproportionately benefit men. We know from work by Hauju Key that the gender pay gap grows larger towards the top of the wage distribution. For workers in the bottom 10th of the wage distribution, there's effectively no gender pay gap. For workers in the top 10th, the gender pay gap is 27 percentage points. Analysis by Miranda Stewart, Sarah Wachowski and Roger Wilkins used tax data to look at the gender composition of the top 10% of adults, those with individual incomes over $94,000 a year. They found that just a quarter of this group were Women. That means that the top decile in Australia is more male-dominated than the top decile in Spain and Denmark and Canada and New Zealand, in Italy or in the UK. We get a similar story from wealth holdings. The richest 200 Australians list is a heavily male-dominated one. So because high-income earners are mostly men, cutting top tax rates widens the gap in take-home pay between men and women. The Parliamentary Budget Officer's analysis of the personal income tax cuts announced in this year's budget found that the package as a whole was skewed towards men. That was particularly true of the third phase of the package due to commence in 2024. Removing the 37% marginal tax rate, which effectively means that all income from $41,000 to $200,000 is taxed at 32.5%, benefits men over women at a ratio of 2 to 1. Increasing the lower threshold for the 45 percent marginal tax rates from 180,000 to 200,000 benefits men at a ratio of three to one. And that parallels the impact of the cuts to services in the budget four years ago, which adversely affected women more so than men. Third, men are significantly more likely to claim tax deductions than women. The average male taxpayer claims. 3,200 a year in deductions, the average female taxpayer claims $1,900. Meaning that men deduct about $2 for every dollar of tax deductions by women. Women received 43% of the benefits of the capital gains tax discount and only 38% of the benefits of negative gearing. Just 29% of the tax benefits of the dividend franking credits go to women. But surely, I hear you say, you're repeating yourself. I've already noted that men's average incomes are higher than women. So why am I now telling you that men's deductions are higher than women? Well, interestingly, it turns out things aren't quite so simple. Analyzing a confidentialised sample of tax returns, Australian National University researcher Peter Varela explored what happens when you take account of observable differences in income, age, occupational, occupation and marital status. So now effectively what he's doing is comparing married 60 year old professionals who earn say 200,000 and then saying that if you have a man and a woman with the same income, occupation and age and marital status, is there a gender gap in deductions? The answer turns out to be yes. Borella finds a 12% deductions gap between men and women equivalent to about $75. So that suggests in turn that measures to curtail tax deductions are likely to help close the gender pay gap. Fourth, businesses owned by women tend to have lower turnover than businesses owned by men. Among unincorporated enterprises, the average profit received by women is half as much as the average profit received by men among uh, incorporated enterprises, those run by women have on average two thirds the income of those run by men. And that suggests that policies targeted towards small or even micro businesses may have a disproportionate impact on women entrepreneurs. Fifth, consumption taxes may have a gender bias. The best known example of this is the tax on tampons and sanitary pads, which is effectively a tax on women. When our GST laws were written in 1999, they were mostly drafted by male public servants reporting to a male-dominated cabinet in an overwhelmingly male parliament. As a result, tampons and pads are subject to a 10% GST, while incontinence pads, sunscreen, nicotine patches, even Viagra, are exempt from the tax. And in the two decades that the GST has been in operation, this decision has come to seem increasingly archaic. More generally, because women tend to have lower incomes and lower savings rates, a tax mix switch that increased consumption taxes and decreased income taxes, or for that matter company taxes, would effectively increase the total tax burden on women. So, what principles should guide the taxation policies of a government that seeks to narrow the gender pay gap? First, as the saying goes, what gets measured gets done. While I've benefited in preparing this speech from data produced by government agencies, think tanks and universities, some statistics are frustratingly hard to find. Governments need to do a better job of producing gender disaggregated data. In 1984, the Hawke government initiated the Women's Budget Statement, a document that continued to be produced through the Keating government, the Howard government, the Rudd government and the Gillard government. But when the Abbott government one in 2013, it ceased production. From opposition, Labor's continued to produce a shadow women's budget statement. If we win government, we'll restore this important piece of analysis. We also need to do a better job of measuring gender gaps. Perhaps the most gendered survey carried out by the Australian Bureau of Statistics was the time use survey, which measures unpaid activities such as caring, housework and volunteering. When Australia conducted our first national time use survey in 1992, we were pioneers. But as Tanya Plibersek's pointed out, we haven't done one since 2006, and that's before the iPhone was launched. As the Australian National University's Marion Saw points out, it was feminists who campaigned for national time use surveys to measure the volume and distribution of unpaid work. A shortened Labor government will fund the Australian Bureau of Statistics to conduct a time use survey in 2020 and in 2027. Second, we should maintain a progressive income tax. As Meredith Edwards and Miranda Stewart argue, a progressive income tax on individuals with marginal rates that rise as income rises is important for women's equality because women earn less than men. A progressive income tax is both efficient taxing less responsive, higher income earners more highly, and equitable, being based on ability to pay. The tax system operates in the context of gender unequal workforce outcomes for both wages and for hours, an environment in which the lion's share of part-time work is done by women. As Milton Friedman reminds us, to tax is to spend. Cutting the revenue base ultimately means cutting spending. Some kinds of spending go equally to men and to women, but many kinds of expenditure reductions have a more adverse impact on women. Those include Medicare cuts, given that women are much more likely to see a doctor than men, university cuts, because women are more likely to attend university, public service cuts, because women are more likely to work in public service jobs, and social service cuts given that women are more likely to be sole parents, carers, and pensioners. Third, we should close unjustified tax loopholes. When I studied graduate public finance, one of my lecturers was Martin Feldstein. Marty had chaired the Council of Economic Advisers for Ronald Reagan. You wouldn't have called him one of Harvard's most progressive economists. But, as I'm sure you know, you can learn a surprising amount from someone of a different ideological persuasion. I liked his style, a meld of war stories and data. One of the points he made is that what he called tax expenditures had proliferated in the United States. He argued that Congress should review those tax expenditures and eliminate those that the country cannot afford. Reducing tax expenditures, Feldstein points out, raises revenue more efficiently than increasing tax rates. In economic jargon, Closing loopholes has a lower deadweight cost than raising rates. In addition, tax expenditures tend to be much less fair than budgetary expenditures. So closing loopholes is more equitable than cutting spending. That approach has informed Labor's tax philosophy over recent years, as our economic team has made a number of politically tough decisions to close tax loopholes will prospectively restrict negative gearing to new-built homes, ensuring that that tax concession helps add to housing supply. We'll prospectively halve the capital gains tax discount from 50% to 25%. We'll address unfair income splitting, which means that trust distributions to adult beneficiaries will attract a minimum tax rate of 30%. We'll end the situation of Australia being the only country in the world to provide cash refunds of dividend imputation credits for people who've paid no tax. The company tax system will prevent multinationals from using excessive debt deductions to unfairly lower their tax bill. And all of this from a gender perspective is similar to maintaining a healthily progressive income tax system. It ensures that government's funded by those with the ability to do so and has the resources it needs to run the programs the community supports. Fourth we should reject de- attempts to switch the tax mix onto consumption. After he became treasurer Scott Morrison spent summer 2015 and 2016 toying with the idea of raising the GST. An idea long championed by various groups on the right end of the political spectrum. To do so would be to systematically disadvantage Australian women. Given the regressive nature of consumption taxes. That's it. I'm not aware of a definitive study that looks at the scale of this gender disadvantage. So, if any researcher in the room is looking for a new topic, a gender analysis of increasing consumption taxes is a paper which is sure to be heavily cited when the next Raise the GST campaign rears its head. We can also improve the gender equity of the GST by exempting tampons and pads. The idea was first floated briefly by then Treasurer Joe Hockey, remember him, in 2015. But unfortunately Hockey was unable to identify an alternative source of revenue for states and territories. The GST legislation requires that any changes to the tax be supported by all states and territories. And Hockey's proposal to simply exempt sanitary products failed to win uniform support. Labor's proposal announced this year by Bill Shorten, Tanya Tanya Plibersek and Catherine King is to replace the $30 million currently raised by taxing sanitary products by applying GST to 12 natural therapies that are not supported by scientific evidence, such as herbalism and naturopathy. The proposals received support from the premiers of Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia Chief Ministers of the ACT and Northern Territory, and Labor leaders in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. Enacting the tampon tax, Australia would be following jurisdictions such as Canada, New York, Illinois and Florida, which have removed their sales tax on sanitary products. We estimate that over a lifetime our decision would save the typical woman around $1,000. And fifth, while my focus today is on women and taxation, it would be remiss not to touch on some other economic policies that'll improve gender equality. Preserving the education entry payment, an annual $200 payment, to assist certain social security recipients with the cost of education. Recipients of that payment are overwhelmingly women, studying so they can enter the workforce, often after their caring responsibilities cease. Restoring weekend penalty rates. Women comprise a majority of the Sunday retail, accommodation and food service workforce. Penalty rate cuts, costing low-paid women up to $1,378 every year, have the effect of widening the gender pay gap. Supporting 10 days paid domestic violence leave, allowing women to attend court, see a counsellor or find a new place to live. Investing to build a reproductive health hub in Hobart, providing surgical terminations as part of the public hospital system. So Tasmanian women no longer have to travel interstate or pay huge out-of-pocket fees to access surgical abortions. And introducing gender impact assessment for all new policies and working with government departments to set and report on gender indicators across portfolio areas. Good policies for women are more likely to emerge when there's more women in the room. Women now comprise 46.3% of Labor's federal representatives, about twice the share in the Liberal Party at 23.5%. Just 9.5% of National Party parliamentarians are women. Clearly, no political party is perfect. But when Julia Banks last week announced that what she called bullying and intimidation had led her to retire from politics after just one term, I couldn't help thinking that Perhaps the bad behaviour had something to do with the fact that the Liberal Party Room in 1998 had a higher share of women than it does today. Labor's affirmative action policies were controversial in the 1990s, but I can honestly say that having been a federal parliamentarian for eight years, no one has ever come up to me and suggested the women in the Labor caucus are on average less talented than the men. Given the Liberal Party has failed to increase their share of women over a 20-year period, I wonder whether maybe they should grit their teeth and try the approach that's worked for us. My guess is the sky probably wouldn't fall in on Menzies' house and our parliament would be a better debating chamber than it is today. We also need to think about the role of women in key economic roles. As Chris Bowen pointed out last year, Australia has had a female Prime Minister and a female Governor-General. Every state bar one has had a female Premier, we now have a female Chief Justice. Yet as he put it, we've never had a female Secretary to the Treasury, or a female Reserve Bank Governor, or Deputy Governor, or female Chair of the ACCC, or APRA, or ASIC, or the Future Fund, or the Productivity Commission. We do need to change that. So in our discussion today of deadweight costs, labour supply, elasticities, and feminism, I hope I've persuaded you that the topic of taxation and gender is far from absurd. Plenty of thoughtful scholars, including Miranda Stewart, Patricia Apps, Guillaume Carle, Meredith Edwards, Maria Racinero, Sarah Vachovsky and Pamela Katik have explored these issues. I've learned a huge amount from their work. Once you accept that the conversation about gender and tax is worth having, a few implications follow. High effective marginal tax rates make it harder to combine a fulfilling career with raising a family. So we need to ensure that our transfer system and childcare policies do not throw up unnecessary barriers. Making the income tax system less progressive will widen the gender pay gap. Closing unnecessary tax loopholes will narrow it. Similarly, high consumption taxes tend to have a more adverse effect on women than on men. Gender gaps in Australia remain significant. And if we want our sons and daughters to grow up in a more equal world, it isn't just enough to focus on how the government spends money. We also have to look at how it raises revenue. Thanks very much.